City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Okay, Acres and Acres of Tar and Cement means we're back on City Limits, second Tuesday, second Wednesday of the month. And um, it's there for our sort of energy type day. Uh, and we're going to be talking about perhaps energy going wild because we're going to, in the first half of the program, talk to Bluey Rutherford, the former long-term secretary of the Plumbers Union, who's also well-known, of course. Sonia and Bluey are both well-known as massive activists in their local community, and he's going to talk to us about the fire last Friday at uh, Campbellfield that caused so much damage and, uh, and the aftermath of that in the local community, which is really reacting very strongly and demanding a lot more be done about these things. So we're talking to Bluey in the first half of the program about that. And the second half, we've got a guest, uh, Eugenia. And mm. we haven't said who we are, actually. Tell them who you are, Eugenia. <laughs> Good Eugenia. morning, everyone. Tell I'm them Eugenia. you're Eugenia Zubchenko. I'm Eugenia Zubchenko, <laughs> which you struggle to pronounce every week. <laughs> and I'm Kevin Healy. And... Um, and it is, um, and, it, and well, the guest, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to speak to Bluey, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to speak to Dr. Yvette Maker, um, who's a researcher looking into how people with cognitive disabilities access uh, things like utilities, energy, and telecommunications, and how those companies can do more to um, make that easier, yeah. Yeah. All right, I'll pour some tea on you <laughs> now, okay. Yeah, Meg's, uh, Meg's incapacitated this morning, everyone, so yes, yes, just later. two cups of tea instead of three in the studio this that's morning. That's it, that's it. And um, and next week, just as a just by the by, or not by the by, really, but about that fire last week, we're going to be also talking on the program next week, which is our normal housing day, and we'll have the housing as well, but we're going to be talking to those who listen to the program, we'll know Helen Vandenberg, another massive community campaigner, and she's going to be talking about the environmental impacts of that fire and the waterways and, and follow-ups to other damage that's been happening out there in recent times. So more on that next week as well. Um, so there we are. Mm, that's, there we uh, are. That's Second <laughs> Wednesday. Second Wednesday. Um, and today, just um, I thought it might be worth mentioning um, that these, there was a little item in the last week. I'm going to have a sip of tea first. Hang on a tea. <laughs> mm. Hydrate yourself. Ah, there we are. That's right. I've got to, got to do that to get going. Um, the, two, there was that story a couple of months ago with the young Saudi woman who got out and managed to get to Thailand, I think, wasn't it? Wherever she got to, I think it was Thailand. Um, and she wanted to come to Australia, but she ended up going to, um, I think it was Canada, wasn't it? Took her in the end. Mm. Um, but, you know, she never looked like getting to Australia under our policies, even though she, she clearly um, would be a refugee in terms of how you might define refugee. Mm. Another story, though, two Saudi Arabian sisters aged 18 and 20 are hoping for a bright, beautiful future, that, quoting them, after being granted asylum as they flee what they describe as an abusive family in a repressive society. The sisters fled from their family last September and have been stranded in Hong Kong since an aborted attempt to get to Australia, where they hope to secure asylum. Their names and country of asylum have not been revealed. Now, I think, even though it's not been revealed, I think we can take a big stab and 
I think with about 100% accuracy, work out where they're not, uh, which would be Australia where they actually <laughs> wanted to go. Um, and it just shows, again, the cruelty of our policies and uh, mm. how dreadful they are. Yeah, totally. And in speaking of women, um, women and, uh, and the odd touch of sexism, um, this is an interesting story. Air Force pilots are being told to think twice before bombing bridges in case this forces civilian women to walk further from water for water and firewood. A gender in air operations doctrine introduced last year orders RAAF personnel to consider actions through a gender perspective. And they say if the target is a bridge, the so this same bridge may also provide the only route for the local population to gather supplies such as water and firewood. Although destroying the target may provide a military advantage, the second-order effect may mean that due to the gendered social roles, women need to travel further afield on unfamiliar and less secure, well-known or well-lit routes to gather water and firewood, etc. Now, the reaction to this is, is astonishing. The New South Wales president of the Australian Peacekeeper and Peacemaker Veterans Association, interesting name for people who totally believe in killing people in war, but anyway, they're peacekeepers and peacemakers. Bruce Relf said top brass were trying to make the buck stop with the pilot. This is going to make the pilot hesitate, afraid he might be charged with war crimes and that puts his life in danger. The enemy will not be hesitating to shoot him down. Former soldier Bernard Gaynor said, It seems the politically correct agenda has yet to reach peak insanity inside defence. Pilots are now required to consider feminist theory before dropping bombs. Gender advisers are now deployed on operations. We need our defence force to train combat warriors, not social justice warriors. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, they are very yeah. defensive. That's an interesting, um, <laughs> interesting thing to consider. I mean, there is a su- somewhat of a point to it, right? Like the pilots aren't the ones that decide which targets they're shooting for. Although I guess they have yeah. a bit more control. Of I mean, the best the answer might be to not have the enemy and not be dropping the bombs in the first place. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, we <laughs> can both agree on that. When, when they talk about the enemy, I mean, um, they don't mention who at this stage poses a threat to Australia. And yeah, I mean, what, uh, that was going to be my question. What kind of um, places... Are we bombing at the moment? Well, I think Syria? it's Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Iraq, yeah, yeah. around the place we're, we're dropping them. Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting, like, considering that people talk about civilian casualties or the collateral damage or whatever, but, you know, it's right. I think a lot of those people that are affected by that would be women and children mm. that have been kind of left behind by these conflicts. Oh, absolutely, but of course it just never worries people like the Yanks or anyone, you just mm. go and they're called collateral damage, aren't they? Mm. Um, now, today, of course, oh, that's what we didn't mention. In, I knew there was something I was trying to think of in the show today. At, at about just before yeah, 10, yeah. about 8 minutes to 10 or so, we are going to cross to uh, get a report on what's happening down at the Union Rally, the Change the Rules Rally that's mm-hmm. on this morning on today. Yeah, live cross. Um, Exciting 10, for City Limits. Right, 10 o'clock. It uh, starts at 10 at Trades Hall. And, uh, in fact, I'll be heading down there once we come off air today and I'll be down there. It only takes about five or ten minutes to get from here to there. Yeah, so anyone um, going to the rally, look out, look out for a, a white beard. and That's right. Of uh. <laughs> <laughs> which I suspect there'll be many, so <laughs> I'm pretty safe. Um, but uh, on, on such matters, um, there's been a few warnings going on. Um, Chris Richardson is one of those conservative economists, they keep dragging out to comment on things when they happen in the economy. You have know, the telly, get out these so-called experts, and Chris is well known as one of them. He's a Deloitte economist. 
and he's warned that um, Shorten's promise to deliver a living wage is a risky political play that aims to capture swing <laughs> voters and fails to address poverty. If anyone thinks governments can wave a magic wand and improve living standards, they're going to be disappointed. Um, forcing the Fair Work Commission to boost the minimum wage would have some negative impact on jobs while increasing the prices of goods as businesses seek to pass on the costs. There are no free lunches. The politics of this are good, but the economy, ec economics aren't nearly as good. And um, then moving on, um, Richardson said he questioned the um, approach of using the IR system to do the job of the welfare system, saying the latter should be used to address poverty. So what he's really saying is he's admitting that low-paid workers live in poverty, mm. but that the the boss, the, but the, the government, the government through social security, the government through social security should pay for them to have a living wage, but not their employer. That's what he's really saying. The employer. Say that again. The government. Well, the government pay. should pick up the cost of, ma of of between their poverty wage yeah, right. and a living wage, right. and the employer. So the government should take the employer's responsibility for paying a decent wage to people. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. perspective, isn't it? Isn't it? That's, mm. And that's of course that was the very basis of the accord years ago with Hawke and Keating and Kelty at the ACT. It was about. It was about what they called the social wage. I think they were calling it at the time, which meant that you know the the public purse would pick up the the costs to, to employers essentially. And and where is the public purse going to get? How is the how is the public purse going to balance the books with uh, this by extra taking, cost? By taking taxes off the workers who are underpaid in the first place. Okay, that's good. Yeah. yeah. That so works, the companies pay okay. less taxes. Yeah, they pay yeah. less wages. Well, perhaps none. And everyone wins. Yeah, that's apart right. from people who work for the yeah, companies. Yeah, and, that and was, the government. And that was the beginning of the decline of the trade union movement, of course, because in fact, what they tied they before long before Reith and and Howard completed the job, they actually tied union officials really who wanted to get do things for their workers their hands behind their backs, because they um, they were stopped from taking action. Yeah, right. So they did that first, and then they and then they. Yeah. Came to that agreement? Yeah, that's, oh, that's right. a good strategy. Yeah. Now, our old mate Innes Willocks from the industry group, he's a favourite of ours, he said Billy Shorten, and Shorten's thing anyway, he's already wound it down. He said he's going to take into account the interests of employers and the ability to pay, etc. So he's already watered the whole thing down anyway. But even, that's It's always good to take things into account, yeah, isn't it? It's not good enough. <laughs> um, Bill Shorten should go back to the drawing board and come up with a policy that did not put jobs at risk. Oh, they care about workers, you see. It just shows. Um, and um, Sally McManus, now, she's terrible. She said she said it was an essential and fantastic first step to fixing our broken wages rules. But Kelly O'Dwyer, the wonderful industrial relations minister who's sadly retiring at this election, dismissed it as a cruel hoax that would make it harder for Australians to get and keep a job. So... Giving people wages, obviously, is an incredibly dangerous practice. Mm. Incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. But just to show Bill Shorten is um, is going to be in there fighting for the working class, apart from the policy he watered down there and his climate change policy he keeps watering down, although today's rally, I'm sure, is going to tell us to go and vote for him. <laughs> um, he, he says that people like Julie Bishop are in line for diplomatic posts if he wins the election. Um said, where you have got people with distinguished service from the other side of politics, you're crazy not to look at how to utilise their experience in the nation's interest. We need to get the best out of both sides of politics. So apparently she's um, she's had a distinguished career. She, yeah, yeah, so mm. there you are. But just to wind up on that, of course, perhaps her distinguished career can go back to the start where she actually represented 
the asbestos companies in making sure workers died before they got paid. Oh, dear. Uh, so that was <laughs> Good a, morning, that, Melbourne. That's Back to another call. cheerful day city limits. we on the line. We're going to get Bluey on the line, so let's take a short break okay. and talk to him. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There'll be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iwfaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. A big crossover period at that time, though, wasn't there, between when the managers changed, that the new manager got a lot from the one who was leaving? Yeah, yeah, I was I was really lucky because um, Jeff Swanton, who had been here before me, had been here for about six and a half years. And Jeff was going off to set up a small business, but I think there was a six-week handover period, which was pretty good, really, because it was in the lead-up to Radiothon, which, you know, is do or die for the station, really, in terms of its income. I was walked through the whole sort of process and the systems that were in place. I was so impressed. It's hard to imagine from an outside point of view just what goes into fundraising when you're a little community station because every broadcaster's involved. So you've got 400-odd people involved. You've got to coordinate that. You've got to you know, encourage people. You've got to give people the resources to be able to do it. You've got to have the systems in place to find the money and get the money and you know, get the money in and bank the money and everything else. Everyone just gets one go, so they have to make it really work on that, that day. So everyone has to be really fired up. So it's, it's a really important. And, and at that stage, it was a six-week preparation, all mapped out, two-week sort of period of time. And, and then a very big collapse at the end of it, really, because you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm forever grateful for the handover that Jeff gave me. I think I would have struggled otherwise. Yeah, so I think it was it was fantastic. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Okay, we left saying we'll get Bluey on the line, but in fact we can't get Bluey on the line. We're getting, <laughs> we're getting a, uh, it wasn't actually a lie, let me promise you, we just, but, but one, of those, <laughs> one of those dreadful things that can happen with live radio, of course, is that the other person at the other end isn't there. Yeah. And um, they, we're getting a message bank, message machine. They did, did say he'd be home at this time when I arranged this time yesterday, but uh, later I realised that being old union, in fact, they're both, um, they've both been here involved in the May Day Committee for many, many years. Uh, 
So he may well be heading off to the rally and forgot that mm. when he agreed yesterday. That's quite possible. <laughs> um, so we'll see because I said to Sonia, because both people are um, incredibly involved in lots of things, and I said to Sonia, um, well, you can toss up as to who comes on. And um, she said, well, I'm not going to be here, but Bluey will. So anyway. Maybe we can chat to them when we do the live cross to the rally. Well, mate, (laughs) that's right. Get Rebecca to find them in the crowd. we'll just keep raving on here, um, um, essentially to fill in time, but also because they're really important (laughs) issues. I mean, we're talking important. And one of them is actually, I mean, they are important issues. Like there was a report in The Age last week that um, Andrews had supported a... $500 a day cash withdrawal limit in pokey venues, even though the recommendation was that it be much, much lower. And um, and now I don't know whether these things are true or not, but um, it says uh, that Andrews is pretty close to the to the Australian Hotels Association in the gaming industry, Mm. and that. uh, that uh, Labor was a major beneficiary of a $1 million gaming industry campaign in 2018 aimed primarily at denying the anti-pokies Greens the balance of power at the November state election. The powerful Australian Hotels Association made its biggest gift of at least half a million dollars to the ALP, gave, three, gave about 300000 to the coalition parties and supported independents in electorates where the Greens were threatening, including in planning minister Richard Wynne's marginal seat of Richmond. The revelations raised questions for Mr Andrews and Labor about the closeness of relationships with pokies operators and the powerful hotels association in particular. Andrews is regarded in business and ALP circles as a long-time friend of the liquor and gaming industry, especially the AAJ. Both Andrews and, and Ms Kairos, who, who was then the minister and recommended a lower, lower um, limit, have refused to respond to questions, etc. Um, Andrews said his government has made important reforms to minimise gambling harm, but at the same time, we've never made a secret of the fact that gaming, wagering and the hotel industry is a perfectly legitimate form of recreational activity. Mm. It creates many thousands of jobs, and for many people, in fact, the vast majority of people who can partake at a safe level, that's that's exactly what the industry says, mm. um, that it's just, you know, people enjoy themselves. So I've never seen anyone yet sitting at a poker machine who looks happy, yeah. like they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. Anyway, that's maybe just my stupid not seeing the wrong people. Um, <laughs> but the association's own documents claim responsibility for the Andrews government's reforms and for ensuring the changes, quote, had reasonable and appropriate regard to venue operators' interests. Isn't mm-hmm. that interesting? And we, we should venue get some of the because we've talked over the years about pokies and the damage they cause, and um, here we go again. And, of course, the other side that isn't mentioned there is that the government, so much of its revenue comes from taxes on on gambling and poking machines. Yeah, it? very interesting indeed. Yeah. so it's it's Funding all our wages, probably. There's a, well, maybe there's a, <laughs> a self and taking them. Yeah, exactly. Circular <laughs> for, logic. For a lot of people. Uh, do, you know, do you know much about how, how big a problem gambling is in oh, Victoria? It's, it's huge. Um, it is huge. We've had people on, but we should do it again. We've had people on before talking about it. But mm. um, and, and people say that the, the pokies are a, a particularly nasty and invidious um, form because people can get into what they call the zone around mm. the pokey machine and once you're in the zone you sort of just keep going. It's and, so addictive uh, isn't it? Yeah um, but it's and, and the odds are against you from the outer. I mean it's hopeless. Yeah you're of course. You're not going to win on the bloody thing. Um, and they always co- um, combine them with alcohol right? Like they always in pubs and yeah, stuff. Yeah or give them free coffee or something yeah. or whatever yeah I mean they all sorts of ways of attracting people and keeping them there. 
Um, just, um, I wasn't going to mention this this week. We'll wait. Well, I was going to wait for the next transport day, but we will just mention in passing the fact that um, <coughs> Metro, it was in the paper last Wednesday. I think we did mention it in passing with John last week, but um, Metro received a windfall in money from the government for running the system, um, $786 million. This is Metro the train operator. Metro the train operator. Mm. Uh, 20% increase uh, or $164 million extra every year of the contract under its current deal, yet only 92% of trains arrived on time last year and, um, and it, it failed to meet most of the criteria for which it's supposed to uh, operate and get the bonuses and get what it gets. But nonetheless, despite failing all that, it's received these massive handouts from the government. Very interesting. Yes. Now, <laughs> the, um, as, as anyone who's ever caught a um, peak time train in Melbourne will attest. <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, I caught a tram this morning, or two trams as it turned out, but um, they um, they were both crowded to the, to the hilt. Yeah. Um, now, interesting, the, the demonstration by animal rights activists on Monday in Melbourne has everyone up in arms, hasn't it? It's just incredible. Um, the um, vegan shutdown city uh, and, uh, <laughs> and the Herald Sun by the numbers, 180-plus scheduled tram services disrupted, 39 people arrested, and they're actually facing serious charges. I mean... Uh, what was the nature of the protest? Well, it was they blocked. Oh, you were away. Have you been away? Yeah, I've been in South um, Australia. Right. Oh, well, a, a number of animal rights vegans and animal rights activists on Monday blocked, just turned up and blocked the, the corner of uh, Spencer and of, of Flinders and Swanson Street, and so it disrupted the city for ages, and it was. Quite a Vegans in the heart of commerce. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and of course, it's everyone screaming and yelling. Um, the the three hour shutdown of CBD intersection etc. What were uh, they advocating for? Oh, they just they're advocating for uh, against animal cruelty and abattoirs and, and killing of animals etc. Yeah. At various things. Uh, there, there are a few coordinated ones around the place at other places as well, but this was the main one. But they did coordinate quite nicely. But anyway, the, they're up in arms at the old Herald Sun. Lord Murdoch's gone mad, and. Um, Protests cop, cost cops thousands, and then they ran a front page piece and then an editorial hit activists with cop costs, and they're saying that the whole thing costs thousands and thousands of dollars, and the protesters should be asked to meet that cost, oh, which I I find interesting because in things like the one we were to talk about at this moment, the um, the fire last week at Campbellfield, and the previous fire last year, and the previous one at Coolaroo, and all the other fires. The costs of the fire and emergency services putting them out, cleaning up, the damage they do to the environment, the long-term damage to people's health, etc. The Herald Sun, I've never heard them yet scream out that the owners of these factories should meet the full costs of all that. But when 20 or 30 or something vegans turn up and block an intersection, they they should be paid to pay thousands. And in fact, they're saying some of the charges carry five years jail and all that sort of stuff. It's just just ridiculous. Just over the top. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's sort of like um, fining union yeah. workers for striking for better 
working conditions, you know? Like, how is the system meant to work if people aren't allowed to protest something that is important to them? Yeah, which we'll take as rhetorical, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes. we, have, we have time to fill, you know? You can take however you like. But, but that, that's so... Can you explain so. everything in six minutes, Kevin? Well, well Morrison said they're un-Australian. The, the Vegans? Fe- yeah, the, the, these people, un-Australian. <laughs> the federal um, Minister for Agriculture is screaming and yelling and they're all un-Australian as well. And how dare, you know, they, uh, it's like... Like raiding someone's private house, um, so they're all carrying on about it. Um, so, and they said they, they should look for different ways to protest that doesn't cost so much. Now, I'm thinking, therefore, if you don't get it, you know, if your protest is going to block a street, and that's not the way to do it, then are they going to find an alternate way of doing the Anzac Day march this year, or yeah. the, the I mean, it's the Maya. Breakfast, breakfast parade or something? Yeah. Or Christmas parade? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the point. It's the point that it's inconvenient and expensive. Otherwise, they can't get any attention for their issues, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's they've ridiculous. Got a, they've certainly got attention, which is good. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, all these other things they, they support. And, in fact, just ironically, just the same day, the Herald Sun has a headline, crowds to hit streets, traffic delays, detours in, run for the kids, so, um, so that which they're supporting for the children's hospital, which uh, you shouldn't have to do that anyway. The health system should pay for all that. You shouldn't have to raise money for bloody hospitals and health things. Don't miss your 28-page race results lift out in Tuesday's Herald Sun, which is the results of this march. But they're encouraging the closing of the city and uh, people running around the place. So it's all just absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Hypocritical. Yeah. 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 Um, you're looking at the screen. Nothing's happened, obviously. No, I'm no. just seeing um, Gab, the producer's still not been able to get a hold of right. Louis. So okay. next week, probably. Yeah, we'll do something. Well, yeah, we've got definitely got Helen next week, and we might try and double up or something. Yeah. Um, now, again, in these things about um, the costs of the costs of such matters, and the people should pay for them. Um, taxpayers are funding more than 130 million in pre-election advertising from the federal government. Um, and, and, and in fact, it goes on about all these ads. And if you've been watching telly the last few nights, there's been an absolute spate of government, federal government ads. And this is obviously why he's putting off as far as he can calling the election, because once he calls it, they, have, they can't run those ads. Mm. And they're saying they're just routine and what governments do, etc. But in <laughs> fact, it's been a massive amount of spending. Um, and um, that's okay as well. That's something. That's taxpayers' funds going to something that's good, apparently, oh, but not police having to uh, to, um, so pl- to police control the, the vegans. These terrible, <laughs> these terrible vegans. Yeah, militant yeah. vegans. That's right. <laughs> Is there? Um, <laughs> They're bad people. Are there any restrictions on how much money the government can spend on those kind of ads? Um, well, not really. I don't think there are guidelines. I'm not sure what the guidelines say. There are guidelines about it, but they seem to be pretty loose because government mm. get away with murder in terms. They most of them. I mean, you, all governments do it, but mm. they're effectively promotions for the government. Propaganda, all those yeah. Ads. yeah, yeah. So, mm. but there's yeah there there has been a massive spate of them in the last week or two just before the the close off to uh, before the election and telling you how to find out what your government's doing for you, what wonderful things it's doing. <laughs> and most of the things they say are wonderful things they're doing are, are not. Mm. Um, Listen to City Limits to find out what wonderful <laughs> things your government's been doing, I say. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's also been speculation that um, the, the government, the, the state government, of course, wants a 50% uh, reduction in... Um, no, they what sorry they wanted a hundred percent reduction by twenty fifty in CO two emissions, um, and 
um, people are suggesting they're going to have to move a lot more quickly than they are to get there. Mm. Um, but they, um, a bloke called um, Malt, Malt Meinhausen, he's Associate Professor and Director of the University of Melbourne's Climate and Energy College, said the next 12 months would be critical for Victoria to meet its ambitious but quite feasible long-term goal. Currently in Australia, we are pretty much operating in a policy vacuum. These first steps are vital because they will lock in a lot of infrastructure. He said the focus of policymakers over the next 12 months should be on looking at every sector of the economy, from electricity and manufacturing to agriculture, to see what emissions reductions could be made over the next decade. But equally important, he said, was marrying that with a long-term vision and creating a new dynamic. Well, that's a bit of a problem, that last one, for government. Um, the scale of the task ahead for Victoria was illustrated in an analysis commissioned by Friends of the Earth and released this weekend, which was well, a couple of weekends ago. Mm. The analysis crunched the numbers in a report released last year on the state's carbon dioxide emission levels. That government report showed Victoria was on track to meet its voluntary 2020 target to cut emissions by 15 to 20% from 05 levels, but this was largely due to the closure of Hazelwood which saw emissions drop by about 10%. Emissions have risen slightly since, driven by population growth, cars and rising demand for meat. The government report contained no projections for emissions beyond 2020. Extrapolating on the report's greenhouse gas data, the Friends of the Earth analysis shows a continuation of the overall downward trend in emissions seen from 2010 to 2018. It found that if that trajectory continued, Victoria would reach zero net emissions in 2062, or 12 years after the government's target. Under that scenario, Victoria's total emissions would be the equivalent of 28.5 million tonnes by the middle of the century. Climate spokesman Lee Eubank, he's faux spokesman, said Victoria was kicking goals on renewables for the next 12 months would be crucial for the government to match rhetoric with reality. This is a great opportunity for Victoria, etc., etc., etc. So there you are. But um, they've set up a panel with Greg Combe chairing to to look at these things and report back, but we'll have to keep an mm. eye on that. But uh, It'd be good to talk to Friends of the Earth again about that. Yeah, well, in fact, I, I was, until the fire occurred last Friday and I wanted to get Bluey, which has worked really like a charm, um, <laughs> uh, I had planned to get Lee Eubank on oh, today. Good. But, um, You're ahead of it, the game. As it turned out, well, yeah, well. Yeah. We just read out what he said anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One step ahead of the press cycle. Yeah. Has our guest arrived yet, by the way? I'm not sure. We can um, take a break and we'll check it out. Yeah, yeah we, check it out. There, there is just on that, because it is our energy day, there is a further report this week that we're at, Victoria's at a growing risk of blackouts unless more is done to manage the integration of renewable energy and it's that problem of getting it into the system, et cetera, and yeah. the grid. But uh, that's something that As should be As we heard easy. about when we spoke to the geothermal engineer that's right, a few months ago. Yeah, that, that should be easily fixed up, I would have thought, but uh, <laughs> it just needs a bit of resources to go and do it. Yeah, it just needs a bit of funding. Yeah, okay, let's take a break and see what's happened to our next guest. All right, welcome back to City Limits, everyone. Uh, we're in the studio with Dr. Yvette Maker. Hi, Yvette. Hi, Eugenia. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries. Um, so you research uh, how people with cognitive disabilities access uh, things like utilities, telecommunications. Tell us a little bit about your work. Sure. So I've been involved in a couple of projects the last couple of years uh, that have really been exploring the experiences of people with cognitive disability when they're signing up for or when they're having problems with essential or necessary services. 
So things like water, gas, electricity, phone and internet and banking services as well. Uh, we've specifically been looking at what service providers, so retailers, can do to make things more accessible for people with cognitive disability on the basis that they haven't tended to design their processes and practices with a range of consumers in mind. Mm, yeah, <laughs> so interesting. So what kind of barriers do people face? Sure. So we ran an early study really just exploring that question because people hadn't looked at it before. Uh, We find that the voices of people with cognitive disability just aren't heard and recorded in this space as in many others. Uh, So we spoke to a group of consumers, we spoke to consumer advocates and lawyers as well as some people from industry about what they thought the, the barriers or the sticking points were for them. Uh, People raised a range of issues in terms of uh, a lack of access to information in accessible formats, uh, difficulty communicating, so getting through and getting through to someone who could help, uh, as well as a lack of access to affordable, uh, straightforward products and services. Uh, And also a lack of support. People certainly identified access to more support to make decisions, to decipher complicated terms and conditions, to communicate with retailers as being really important for them. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Mm. Yeah, and and what we're talking cognitive injuries here or cognitive problems. Um, just just describe that a little to us. Sure. So so the people that we spoke to, um, we asked for people who self-identified as having uh, difficulties with memory, concentration, learning, cognition, or decision making. So a fairly broad range of people. Mm. Some people in those categories might identify or have a diagnosis of intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, dementia. Uh, severe mental health diagnosis and so on. Um, But we found through the course of the the research that uh, the kinds of suggestions we've come up for improving things have uh, resonated with a really wide range of consumers on the basis that these are really complex services and quite difficult processes, as I said, to get the information that you need to make decisions Mm. and then to deal with providers if you're having issues. Yeah. Yeah, to some degree for all of us. It's not the simplest process in the world. Right. So the idea, again, is really coming up with universally applicable uh, interventions. And a lot of them are just tweaks to current processes just to that can fit within providers' current regulatory requirements, so what they're obliged to do under the law and so on, but that can just make that experience a lot better for people and ultimately mean that people can get the services that they need and the services that they want that Mm. fit within their budget and all of those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any rough um, idea of how many people fall into a bracket where they're having real difficulties kind of accessing this information and making decisions? We don't have that sort of data. Again, it hasn't been collected. Uh, There's been a little bit of research done in terms of the cost to business of things like writing off bad debts and that's in the around $270 million in 2016 just for energy retailers. Uh, So it's a lot of money for them. So there's an incentive for them to be figuring out what they can do earlier on before people get into trouble. Yeah, And that certainly was, we worked with a group of retailers on one of these projects and certainly their uh, experience had been if they could find ways to get to people earlier and provide assistance earlier in the process, then everyone wouldn't end up in trouble further down the track, which tended to Mm. be at the moment when the retailers were first hearing from someone. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was for everybody, actually, but it would be important. And I, and I presume Got a guilty that, twinkle in your eye, Kevin. Yeah, and I presume, exactly. <laughs> I, I presume, though, when they get some sort of notice or something, a lot of people just 
don't understand it or can't follow it or, or it confuses them or something. And, right. And I mean, even, they can confuse anybody, some of those things. Sure. <laughs> and even we found with bills, um, one of the most difficult things for everyone is understanding all of the information on bills, mm. even things like account numbers being nine or ten digits long, mm. which then means that you need to figure out which of the many nine or ten digit numbers on your bill is the one that you need to recite when you first call up. Yeah. Uh, mm. Things like the voice automated systems and having to type in the numbers aren't necessarily accessible to everyone. If, for instance, you have a speech impairment or if it takes you longer to type in a number and then the menu times out and then yeah. you have to go back to the start. Yeah. Getting through the voice activated menu can be quite difficult for many people, um, including some people with cognitive disability. And so, again, it's those real basic things. Mm. Uh, but then on the flip side, particularly in the energy space, the providers are required to provide a lot of that information under regulations on the bills. And so we think there's another piece of this puzzle, which is really looking at the basics of, of what everyone is required to disclose mm. to make that useful information to help people make decisions rather than just clutter and complexity where it doesn't yeah. help or, or you. Or could the disclosure be clearer? Um, the same same disclosures, but you make it much more clear to people what, what it's actually about. Definitely. And things like we've looked specifically at producing information in Easy English, which is a format that uses short sentences. Even forbid, that would defeat a lot of their purposes. <laughs> right. So so lots of white space. It uses pictures to, uh, to communicate information and so on. And the idea being you don't necessarily replace the detailed information that people get, but you provide an accompanying guide that gives people the headlines, the, the information that they really need and that might mm. be of interest and that might be relevant to them. And I think there's a whole lot that could be done in that space to make things um, more accessible for people. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, the insurance industry, their self-regulatory body, was the latest proposal was knocked back because it wasn't in plain English. And I thought, well, that's what they're used to writing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they're used to writing policies that no one can understand. Mm. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. And I think that's the, you know, there's this real trend towards plain language in everything. I did a law degree 12 or more years ago, and even then we were being encouraged to move away from the really complicated writing. Yeah. But, um, you know. About time, I say. <laughs> but, you know, it's so easy for us to sort of trend back into making things complicated because you feel like this is all necessary information for people. But if it gets to the point where it's not helpful, yeah. then yeah. what are we doing? Yeah. Centrelink, is Centrelink involved in this? I presume they are some of their relationships with people. Yeah, so we haven't looked at Centrelink processes. I'm involved in some other research to do with uh, with access, particularly to disability support pension. And certainly uh, in the last week, we've been looking at the claim form and it's something like 34 pages and 180 questions. And so again, mm. questions of complexity, uh, particularly if people mm. are in um, a time of crisis or distress, it can really be a huge barrier to uh, yeah. to getting the basics mm. sorted out for life. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned you've released a report recently on kind of recommendations for these companies to make things simpler. Right. And so we focused on, on with this work on the role of companies on the basis that traditionally there's tended to be this focus on uh, people with disability as having to change or adapt to yeah. 
the the standard system, uh, whereas in this case, looking at all of the structures around people that, as I said, disempower mean that they can't exercise their rights. Uh, so we worked with focus groups of people with cognitive disability. We had an advisory board that included experts with cognitive disability as well as uh, a range of other relevant stakeholders, ombudsmen, con- community lawyers and so on, uh, to produce a set of guidelines for retailers uh, to start improving their processes. And so we had seven utilities and telco companies work with us as well. So we had really good buy-in from everyone involved to start developing things that, as I said, they thought were practical and doable, but that also people, consumers, thought would be useful for them. And so some are really straightforward, like slow down your processes from phone calls, but also if people come into shops in terms Mm. of the amount of time you give people to consider things. Uh, Having it as a standard inquiry, whether people would like to take more time or if they would like to include another person in the conversation Mm. um, to get more advice or consider their budget and those kinds of things. And then also really basic things around disability and mental health awareness training in organisations because a lot of it is really straightforward Mm. stuff. It's just that people don't have experience and confidence when dealing with a range of consumers. Uh, So those are the sorts of suggestions that we've we've got. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess a lot of the time those kind of big policies come down to a single interaction that one human has with another human and if one of those two humans isn't on the same page in terms of awareness and training, it's going to be really difficult. Right, and so a lot of it is really straightforward, reminding people that they have the communication skills that they use every day yeah. um, but maybe just tweaking so things like asking people how they prefer to communicate as I said asking them if mm. they would like information in other formats or if they'd like some more time can be really helpful for people. Yeah. I mean that last point about more time are, are many people being cut off or losing losing you know energy or water or whatever Uh, because this is a problem for them? Yeah, we certainly heard stories uh, from our expert advisors and from our focus groups about things like uh, if so someone has the same electricity and gas provider and the bills are the same colour and they look exactly the same except for the account number, paying the same bill twice, Mm. thinking that you've paid the two separate bills and then eventually one of the services is cut off. Uh, We also heard stories of people if they're in mental health crisis, uh, it can be... um, difficult to open bills and deal with all of that life admin stuff and then the bills start piling up not answering the phone when the provider calls and again eventually Mm. your service is cut off so certainly these are uh, pressing issues for some people and we see lots of ways to avoid things escalating (laughs) to that point in terms of if you can list a support person on your account so that if you're not available Perhaps you give permission for them to be contacted instead. And all of those little things, Mm. um, listing an idea that a lot of people in our focus groups really liked was having the phone number to call on the back of the bill envelope that just says, are you worried about this bill? Call us on this number. And just little things that can sort of ease the way for people. Yeah, and, and hopefully the number you get through pretty quickly to talk to a human being, of course. Yeah, we spoke a lot about that as well in terms of uh, the rigmarole that people have to go through to get through to someone who can help because generally there will be someone in an organisation who can provide that assistance and who has the... Uh, uh, permission, I suppose, to to you know make decisions and get things sorted out for people. But mm. we've spoken a lot about how do you make that pathway easier More for direct. people. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and with, um, you mentioned about having some sort of support person or whatever, but um, with in many cases, the support person might be, get just as confused as anyone else. I mean, that, can that happen as well? I'm right. sure it does. I mean, it can happen. It's a silly question, but... Yeah. No, it's not a silly question at all. And again, uh, with this project, what's come up again and again is everyone involved in it has said, I have these problems. This is something that would potentially benefit me as well and which is why again we've really focused on what retailers need to do rather than on what individuals and their support people need to do because there's this degree to which it's complicated and alienating for a wide range of consumers and so the question has to be how do we go back to basics to figure out how we can equip everyone with with Mm. what they need. Mm. And there's more and more research now as well that um, providing people with more and more information is not the way to help them make good decisions. It has to be about, you know, the whole process uh, and it has to be about ways to communicate things in a more straightforward way. My colleague yesterday gave an anecdote that uh, the Amazon terms and conditions are are longer than Harry Potter. (laughs) Uh, and really? so, again, it's about those sorts of things that have become extremely complicated. There's some interesting research in, I think it's in South Africa and some other work going on in turning contracts into cartoons or comic form. Again, providing alternative ways to um, to provide information to people. Mm. Videos are often suggested as a really good way to do things. And so we talk a lot about the need for multiple formats. And the real comes back to basics there, which is you need to speak to your customers about what formats they find useful and what information they find useful as a starting point and so our umbrella advice to providers was you need to start by consulting in this case people with cognitive disability and their representative organizations about what they want and need uh, and all of your other consumer groups as a starting point to to improving things yeah Is there any um, incentive for the companies to do this work? Uh, We found a lot of goodwill. So really uh, amazing hardship or vulnerability teams is what they're usually called in organisations who are doing uh, a lot of work and are really interested in this. They've got a new uh, group called the Thriving Communities Partnership that's designed to start developing some of these things across sectors and across the industry. And I think there is a lot of promise with that Mm. in terms of organising and collecting information um, in a more centralised way way that can then filter out and bring about change. Mm-hmm. Mm. What about people who are in institutions of some sort, a nursing home or residential care of some sort or whatever, um, are there still problems? They, they, they wouldn't have direct problems with bills or anything because they're paid presumably by someone else, but um, do they still have problems in this area? So in, this, in the projects we've been running, we've been mostly speaking to people who are managing their own affairs, certainly people who may be under different sorts of guardianship arrangements or uh, power of attorney and mm. so on would have different experiences and different issues. Mm. Certainly in the, the Banking Royal Commission and also some of the energy uh, regulators in Victoria have raised examples of stories where people in aged care facilities, for instance, who aren't managing their own affairs have had phone calls and have ended up signed up for for services that they don't need and that cost a lot of money. So this is certainly, you know, a community-wide issue. Uh, And the idea, again, of the work we've been doing is for it to have some universal application, but there's Mm. certainly a lot more work always to do. 
Yeah. 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 It strikes me as really kind of universally important. Like, you know, there's a range of experiences and abilities on all sorts of different spectrums out in the population and everyone should be able to access basic things like energy and (laughs) telecommunications, right? Right. And we talk about universal design in this project too, which you would know a lot about as well, (laughs) Uh, in terms of the starting point for designing anything has to be thinking about everyone who may use that service or that piece of information Mm. or whatever it is and starting from that basis um, rather than thinking about some groups so the groups that traditionally have been labeled as vulnerable even where that vulnerability obviously comes more from the lack of accommodation and accessibility in the world around them uh, thinking of people as add-ons rather than as core business Mm. and that's really been something that we've been working on as well cool um, just to wrap up, do you want to tell us about any projects you have coming up or the kind of next thing you're going to be working on? Sure. So we're hoping that we can scale up this work because there's so much um, more to do in terms of across the community. Community legal centres have expressed an interest in having more information and material to support customers and consumers and so on to get access, yep. as well as self-advocacy groups and others, uh, and also a lot of work uh, in the, as I said, space with Centrelink and disability support pension accessibility. I think there's a lot to do there and hoping to get some interesting work going soon. Mm. Yeah, cool. But, it, but with the work you've done, have you already seen, is there progress going on? I mean, can you see benefits? We've been, as I said, it's been great to be working with sort of everyone involved in the process, including providers, energy providers, and we certainly, we had a really great workshop yesterday where everyone started working through how they might implement these things, and we'll certainly be staying in touch with them to see how they go in the yeah, future. Good, good, we'll have to keep in touch with that. We, we're actually going to cross to the rally very shortly, are we not? Yeah, uh, we're going to cross to the um, Change the Rules rally. So thank you for coming mm-hmm. in, Yvette. Is there like a website mm-hmm. that people can visit to find out more about your work? If you have a look for the Melbourne Social Equity Institute on Google, on the front page there'll be links to our reports. Right. Okay, awesome. Is anything we haven't covered that you wanted to say? No, thank you. It's been really great to come in and speak about the work. And as I said, the, the key takeaway, I hope, is that the simple point of talking to people with disability yeah, about yeah. what they need and want is a really good starting point. Bingo. <laughs> okay, thanks Excellent. for coming in. All right, we're back on City Limits, everyone. We are, and we've got Rebecca from Solidarity Brecky in a Saturday morning show, um, which has a wonderful segment at 8.20. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, it was a dreadful thing to say. Rebecca, um, I'm heading down there shortly myself. But I it's, can't it's, hear you very well. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> well, I hope it's the noise of the I'm crowd. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I hope. I hope. I was going to. I was hoping you couldn't hear us because of the noise of the crowd and the size of the crowd, Rebecca. But uh, how's it going down there? Well, can you hear the music? Not quite. Not no. really. No. No. But no, you, okay. you obviously can. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I'm just. Yeah, people are still arriving. Uh, it's not kicking off and like uh, officially until ten thirty. So yeah. people are milling about. There's a, already the sausages are on the barbie, and uh, yeah, we've got lots of um, people in high vis, and everybody's also donning their um, yeah their hoodies, union hoodies from lots of different unions, and uh, there's also a big uh, space set up just near the stage with lots of uh, rainbow flags. So I've, I'm not sure who exactly who that group is, but, uh, yeah, there's people painting faces. There's young people here, kids, and the school holidays, as you probably know. <laughs> so, 
so yeah, yeah it'll be so, uh, so what, a really what, diverse yeah, So what, um, what unions are around there? What banners can you see that uh, represent the various unions or the various people who are making points? Yeah, so I can see uh, lots of people from the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, uh, and let me see. Um, we haven't started marching yet, so, uh, but I can see also the SDA. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure where they're from. Right. Hang in there. Um, but um, the last two rallies, the ones that were two last year, were both huge rallies. Does it look like being as big again? I think yes, yep. Uh, if not bigger, I think because the election's so close, uh, yeah, it's going to get a lot of people, uh, a lot more people on the streets. And, yeah, um, people from lots of different... Uh, backgrounds and unions coming down and other people supporting. I, I know a friend of mine, also uh, people coming from out of town, from uh, regional centres coming down mm. to Melbourne to join as well. Yeah, I the... already saw uh, the, the guy, um, the secretary of the Bendigo Trades Hall. Yep. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, the, 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 the groups from the bush, um, various country, regional oh, areas... Wow. Have... The, the last two rallies, they've been really an important part of it, so it's good to see them down here, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Rebecca, just tell um, people who are listening who... Sorry, I can't hear what you're saying there. Um, they're about to start something, I think. They were just announced, making an announcement. Can you say that again? I was just going to say, um, for people who are listening who might not know much about the rally, do you want to just tell us um, what you're kind of marching for? So it's the Change the Rules rally, uh, and... Yeah, there's been a lot of um, industrial relations changes under the current coalition government, uh, including um, taking away penalty rates and, um, yeah, lots of other uh, law like, uh, legislation changes impacting um, workers and and the right to strike and, um, yes, yeah, the the way that unions can um, represent their their workers and yeah, people workers can represent themselves. So uh, that's what yeah, it, it's very broad the change the rules campaign, but uh, it's also about getting a Labor government uh, elected in May. So. Yeah. Okay, Rebecca. Look, we're going to, have to leave it there because we're out of time, and Joe Toscano is about to burst in. Um, to the studio but look um, good luck out there and I'll be down there shortly myself actually I'm heading from here down to there so um, so I I'll probably I hope I don't see you because if you say, don't see people it means it's a huge yes. rally yes <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks Thank, Rebecca okay thanks, I'll Rebecca. check in again later after Joe's show so if anybody um, yeah wants to uh, keep listening and I'll bring you another update okay Excellent. thank you thanks, Bye. For, thanks for your work Bye.
That okay. was exciting. That was exciting. Yeah, we haven't done that week. for a while. No, next week, um, before we wind up, next week is housing, and also we're going to be talking to Helen Vandenberg about, and she will be on next week, about the um, the environmental damage of last Friday's fire. Fantastic. Okay, so tune in uh, next week, everyone, and stay tuned for uh, Anarchist World This Week with Joe.